This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. Hello and welcome to Body Count, a history podcast where we gab about death and disaster through the ages, highlighting figures, single events, time periods, whatever it may be that resulted in someone, or as is usually the case, a lot of someone's dying. As always, I am your host, Jessica Manor, and again, as always, joined by my co-host, Says Bethany Skelton. He's <laughs> got so much energy. <laughs> and of course, the lovely Cara DiDemizio. I have no level of energy as Bethany, apparently. And then I wanted to apparently read our intro like I am a slightly louder Ira Glass tonight. Apparently, I had the NPR vibes. I was feeling it though, which is which is never how we do things here. I mean, uh, ask Lowry is kind of what we trade in. That I look, I'm the person that was always listening to NPR uh, in in my little banking office and got made fun of it appropriately um but because you can't be more pretentious than being a lender and then listening to npr it's gross uh so really quickly before we introduce and yes we have a guest i think that is the theme that all of us are coming to know and understand here at body count over the next few months first i have to address our housekeeping our one ask Please, 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 if you love the show, if you do not, disregard this. But if you do love the show, please go and give us those five stars on whatever listening platform it is that tickles your fancy. The reason why we ask you to do this is not because we want to hear a bunch of positive things about ourselves, although we do love it. Not going to like... <laughs> Not going to say we don't, but that being said, it helps us out on the business end and the back end a great deal. So if you love this podcast, please, please, again, I cannot stress it enough. Go give us five stars and rate and review. It can be one sentence. It can like you can write whatever you want. I don't care. You can write a question. I'll look and answer. Just do your thing. Now, that being said, we do have a guest tonight, and a guest I'm pretty pumped about. Um, not that I'm not pumped by all of our guests, but uh, particularly pumped about this one, if you will, folks. So if you will go ahead and introduce yourself, illustrious guest, and what it is that you do. So my name is Wesley Livesey, and I uh, have made some podcasts since 2014, I started mm -hmm. off with a, a podcast called History of the Great War, which uh, chronicled the events of the First World War. And then uh, I got to the end of that. And so I started a nice small little project called History of the Second World War that is <laughs> probably going to take a decade or more. I don't know. It's the new history of Rome. Let's it's be a big honest. one. You've, <laughs> you've, you've gotten a Mike Duncan situation going on now. I mean, how dare you take on such little petty bs projects as maybe the first and second world wars there sir i have to tell you you've got like a, to start uh, small you yeah. know really. I start small <laughs> yeah. start yeah. small that's always the way you do it <laughs> I, I guess he could have started somewhere like the hundred years war or something like that fair that's a good point actually so. 
Yeah, I know. Honestly, I feel like that has less to freaking cover at some <laughs> points than uh probably you're probably right. Uh, it just yeah. it just depends on your view on geopolitics. So that being said, what is it again? illustrious guests who start small wink wink that we're going to be talking about tonight so we're going to be talking about the russian civil war uh which occurred sort of in the aftermath or during the first world war in russia Fun. which really Back quickly viewers i want you to all imagine the shit-eating grin on my face right now because we're going back to my hands down favorite place to go to if i don't have something on the books for a particular week that i'm supposed to write about where do i go why russia of course again everybody at body count knows this so i am so happy to have you take me to my favorite place in all of human history good old russia so let's dive in let's do this okay so, first of all, I want to talk about why the Russian Civil War is so confusing before I start talking about <laughs> the Civil War as a whole. So It's a good disclaimer, honestly. It is. It really is a great oh, fantastic <laughs> place to start, there's, sir. There's a lot of politics involved, Bethany. So... I'm already i was it. a little worried you were gonna dive straight in and i i've never been happier with the guests let's do this so okay there you go thank you i'm, I'm gonna give you two reasons uh, why the russian civil war is so confusing in no real order but two reasons first of all there's a lot of groups involved with the civil war um, there are the Reds, the Whites, the Greens, the Blacks, and a bunch of national groups all over the Russian Empire who are trying to not be a part of the Russian Empire anymore. And in each of those countries, or what would become countries like Estonia, Latvia, Poland, Finland, you have little groups inside of those that mirror the wider conflict that was happening in Russia. So because of that, you get a whole bunch of people all disagreeing but sometimes disagreeing amongst themselves as well or with their own group. And sometimes they use, you know, colors instead of any descriptors. So, you know, what does red, white, green, and black mean? Uh, you can't really tell unless you know that's, you know, the communists, the not communists, the peasants, and the anarchists in that order. Wow. And, yes. For those that don't know anything about history, the best I can explain it to you is sort of if, despite George R.R. R. Martin's attempts to say that he's writing about the War of the Roses, I think he actually draws a lot more off of Russian history than he does necessarily English history. Um, it's as if Westeros threw up on you, but in color schemes versus banners. So let's, oh. let's start there. And okay, Bethany, you got it? Okay, instead yeah. of banners and houses, this is like color schemes for whatever you believe. Yeah? Yes. Okay. That makes sense. All right. No, honestly, it kind was, of makes I was, sense. I was really just thinking group. It's a group inside of a group inside of another group. That group doesn't necessarily belong with that group, even though they're all kind of. In I the mean, same that's group. fair too. I mean, that's have, fair too. Like, but no, they I each have their own thing. Okay, you know, some are allies, some aren't. Some are this, some are that. So I, I just want you to kind of get the picture. 
if you will. Okay. Sorry for the interruption. Okay. And then the second reason all of this is so confusing is because, as Kara mentioned earlier, it's all very politically charged. So anytime you do any reading about this period in history, you can get some very different views on events depending on who you're talking to. Uh, ah, familiar. Yes. To, to, give a, a, to give a very specific example of that, um, depending on your views of communism as a political concept and its implementation in Russia, you're probably going to get very different um, ideas about the success or failure of communist economic reforms under war communism, which was put in place during the war, and the new economic policy that was put in place afterwards. We don't need to worry about what those are at the moment, but you will get very different um, opinions on how successful or unsuccessful or humane or barbarian those processes were based on your views of communism. And that's just one example of many of how things can become a little charged i guess is is a good word and looking it's an excellent word and and looking back on it from like a historical standpoint when i would look at if, if someone like me would look at the different things i would be like well this like what's the true story because they would be conflicting yeah exactly and especially if you are an English speaker, um, there is, you know, um, if you're going to look at English sources, you're probably, you're at risk. I won't say you're probably, you're at risk of getting a very specific viewpoint on events due to the fact that the, this is when the Soviet Union is created and that rolls into the Cold War, which, you know, was going for 50 years or whatever. Mm -hmm. Wow. It's, so so really if you're not careful... Oh, sorry. What he's saying is if you're not careful from the get-go, Bethany, you're already not objective, depending yeah. on how you source it. Okay. I was going to say, it really sounds like it's a matter of who you, who you like, um, I guess, from which ally or who had a stake in it. You know, like, who who benefited, who, who didn't benefit from what was going on and and their say so it's going to depend on what you what you read i mean i get it i mean precisely uh which ghostbuster you call is very much going to matter in this situation right, yeah right. yeah people that he's going to mention to you it's going to be the same thing so kerensky is going to have a different tale mm -hmm. than lennon would have a different tale and and all the associated allies and you have to remember too that in the the period that we're talking about a lot of um, Russians, especially certain affluent Russians, fled the country. Um, Paris was a huge hotbed, London to an London. extent as well. Um, mm -hmm. I think Paris first and then London. Yeah, but, I agree. So that's if, if you're looking at sources from those regions, you're typically looking at, again, a particular viewpoint because think about it, who would have left the people that wouldn't benefit from the system? And I'm not saying it was a good system at all. I'm just saying objectively, there would be inherent biases. Uh, they were they were not going to do well from the get go. And I think uh, uh, there's such a shitstorm around Lenin when you go into uh, there's there's very little objectivity. But that's what I enjoy about this podcast is so objectivity. My, I was going to say. So then, my question for you is: Before we get going on any further of this craziness that's about to unfold, how is it that you keep that objectivity like i guess it's you're are you able to summarize basically all sides of things 
versus yeah, so, side or so it's it's more about uh, when you're reading um, uh, about events, either in primary sources or secondary sources. It's more, more about um, identifying the bias of the author and trying to think about how that affects how they talk about things, right? So there are certain, I, I have called them in the past, I call them hard facts and soft facts. So hard facts are what you get from a Wikipedia article in the upper right-hand corner in the summary box. It's okay. like, is it, these events happened this date and this date, and this many people were involved, and this many people died. Um, those are hard facts. Those are generally somewhat easily nailed down. Uh, but when you get to soft facts, um, things become more difficult, and you really have to think about who you're reading. You know, if, if you are reading uh, maybe uh, somebody who's talking about events from the Russian Civil War, and they're writing in, say, the 1950s, from America, even, to get it as specific as possible, it's very likely that they are very anti-communist in their views, and they're writing from a very anti-communist perspective. So maybe they are more critical of of Lenin's policies or Lenin himself. And when they start making statements about the effectiveness of things, of of what happened, you have to be kind of cautious that they're not using the numbers that put Lenin and the communists in the worst possible light. Wow, that's so crazy. Like, it's think about like it like data. It's like walking this, on shells through history. But okay. this is why, like Kara said, he's the new like history wrote. Like this is this is why this is a truly great podcast because you are one of those podcasters. I feel like when I listen, you really do take all everything coming at you, and you find that middle road, which is most likely the truth. Um, you do Bethany, an excellent job of it. Like and I'm such show. a fan. You'd love his show, Bethany. I Both think. Of them, to yeah, because it, 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 he's. If you can't tell already from him, he has a really good way of explaining things to a wide audience. If you can't tell by the way that Kara and I are hashtag fangirling right now, you know, like I think it, I think it's just okay. You know, you got to keep expectations <laughs> See, but, low. Yeah. Yes. Well, to be fair, I, I mean, I can understand that because you'd be listening to your own voice, right? I think we're all our own worst critics in a way. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. But to go back to the point, though, I was going to say, um, to compliment what you were saying, Wes, um, it's like statistics, right? So it's how statistics can be manipulated by who is presenting them. So Bethany, mm -hmm. for example, to compliment, say that same American author in the 1950s is writing, well, they're more likely to put the czarist Russia in a more favorable light and excuse certain things that had been committed by the whites or these different factions that were not a part of like Lenin's um, faction, so to speak. But then again, Bethany, knowing just a little bit you know about czarist Russia, you know that that's probably not necessarily the fucking truth, right? So there again what you're okay. going to do. So let's get into it because that yeah. was a proper introduction and I'm very glad that you did that. Uh, boom. You nailed it. Okay. So let's actually talk about what happened. Okay. okay. So to, to kind of put this into a time frame, So this is happening. This sort of begins in late 1917 in Russia. So at this point, Russia has been in the first world war for three years and some change. 
they are still in the First World War. I want to make that clear. And the Second Russian Revolution has just happened where the Bolsheviks have taken power. There are a lot of people who aren't a fan of this, um, who eventually become the whites. But the because Russia is still in the war, there is, uh, and they will be, I think they signed the treaty on in early January 1918, I think, uh, with the Germans to get out of the war. The fighting doesn't really get going until after they are out of the war. And what happens is within the Cossack areas of sort of south central-ish Russia, the the white cause begins to kind of coalesce. So at this point, you're you're talking about very few people, really, maybe a few thousand. But they are generally well-connected, so they are often army officers. They kind of coalesce around this group of army officers. They are, you know, supported by people like landowners, industrialists, all these people who are greatly at threat due to the Bolsheviks, who want to, you know, dismantle everything. <laughs> and there's a lot of people with vested interests in that not happening. So what happens is... is is this resistance starts to coalesce within kind of the protection of the Cossack areas. Uh, the, the, the Don Cossacks and the, and the Kuban Cossacks are one of these groups that really want to break away from Russia. They want greater autonomy, maybe not necessarily independence in this case, but certainly autonomy. And so they kind of shelter the, the whites for a time. However, as the Bolsheviks continue to kind of gain more control, they eventually start coming into the Cossack lands and the white forces have to leave. So basically they do something called the Kuban Ice March, which is where they are moving from the Don Cossack areas to the Kuban Cossack areas and still in Southern Russia. And it's kind of a miserable situation they get to where they're going. They realize that their reds are already there. And at that point, their leader dies. And a person called General Denikin sort of becomes the leader of the white movement in southern Russia. This is important. Denikin will be around for a long time, which is why I mentioned his name. And at this point, the white cause is kind of saved by a very unlikely source. And that is the Germans. So what has happened is... Is the white the the whites at this point, who are with Denikin, are in what is today southern Ukraine, and what happens is is the Germans who have no food in Germany, like people are literally starving in the streets because of the First World War and the Allied blockade, they come into Ukraine because they want to find food, um, and so what this does is this creates a shelter for the white movement behind these Germans that the Red Army is you know not going to mess with. And so the white cause kind of grows at that point. And so what, what happens now is they get more support. They get support from the Western allies. Well, I'm not going to say Western. The allied powers, um, America, France, Britain, and others. And this allows them to kind of stabilize. They still, they, they hope to get more sort of volunteer army officers. They actually call their army the volunteer army. It is made up of a very small percentage of volunteers. The rest are conscripts. But they do have an army. 
and, and again, they are getting support from uh, France and Britain and, and others. And actually, French troops arrive in the Crimea. Don't really do much, but they are there. We can talk about interference later. It seems uh, to be a, a reoccurring thing. Yeah, it's going to come up late. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah you do a great job. We're here, though. <laughs> so so I, I do want to throw out there that, you know, the, the, the troops that were sent, they were coming off of four years of their country fighting and dying in the trenches, and they weren't exactly thrilled to be going adventuring, you know, a thousand miles away. So uh, so what happens is the whites kind of uh, solidif solidify, stabilize in southern Russia. And then there are other white forces that um, start to sort of build up. So in Siberia, where Bolshevik uh, sort of power is never strong, they don't really control Siberia at the beginning because Siberia is gigantic and all the way over there. And and from Siberia, this uh, this guy named Kolchak, General Kolchak, sort of begins to control a huge area. It's an area with like 12 million people in it. It's a huge part of Siberia. But of course, you're in Siberia, so those 12 million people, uh, there's a lot of square footage for them to be in. So it's difficult for him to kind of, you know, get support coalesced into one unit to do something with. But both Dinikin and Kolchak are in communication with the British and the French, trying to, you know, get support. And so they are trying to coordinate an offensive against the Reds. At this point, the the Bolsheviks, the the this point, I think they're called the communists, have created the Red Army. They have built up the Red Army to be a reasonable army. And so they try to coordinate their efforts. They attack from the south, they attack from Siberia. They both don't do particularly well. Uh, they do okay at the beginning, but then it all kind of falls apart. And so Kolchak is kind of destroyed. Dinikin retreats to Crimea. And then that's how it kind of sits for a bit because of the polls. Really quickly, I think Kara has a question. Oh, sorry. I should look at no, the No, no, video. no. No, no. So my question, and this is more of a question statement, but would you say it's fair that a lot of more of the Bolshevik support were in urban centers than rural because that's the impression I've got from what I've like read is yeah. that the Bolshevik for them, the easiest movement, like the way that they could understand and mobilize were better in urban areas. So Moscow um, and, and cities similar to that versus in the rural areas, the whites would have somewhat of an advantage. Um, is that correct? Is that a, a correct assessment? Or uh, That is certainly a fair statement. I think what you see is, when the war starts, the, the the Bolsheviks are based in the cities. That's sort of where their their revolution is based in. The the workers is where they get their their biggest support, and they have some serious um, policy problems when it comes to the countryside. So what has happened it before the Bolsheviks come to power is the rural peasants have sort of achieved their goals after the first revolution. So in a lot of places, they have taken over the land. They've at times killed the landowners and they've taken over their land. So they are landowners now. This is what they've wanted since serfdom was abolished, uh, you know, in Which the Which was relatively recent for Russia, I might add. Yeah. And... Mm. Yeah. And, and so what they, they've achieved their goals... 
But the problem is, is Bolshevik um, policies uh, at this point are very much anti-property, anti-personal ownership, uh, that kind of stuff, right? So the peasants resist that because we just got this land. We would like to keep it. Um, <laughs> and, and so oh, my they, God. They have, I am loving this because I was about to go in and explain all of this to Bethany, but you are freaking nailing it. Look at it, you star guest, our new star guest. I can tell in Bethany's faces when like she's understanding it, if that makes sense. So like you're doing a great yeah. job because I can see. And you can see it the pleased on my face, which uh, very rarely happens when we have a guest. So you're you're freaking nailing it, sir. Yes, thank you. That's a great explanation. Yeah. Yeah, and, and also, also like beyond just the policy problems, like they also the the Bolshevik leadership just are people from cities who have lived in cities their whole life. You know, they they don't have a party organization outside of of these larger urban areas, and so it's hard for them to to reach out to those people, especially when you start including the the problems that they will face during the civil war, uh, especially around food shortages. So food shortages were a big problem in Russia during the first world war. It's actually one of the big contributing factors for the Russian revolutions. And so when the civil war starts, when the Bolsheviks take power, the food problems don't just go away. They still need food in the cities. And so the Bolsheviks are like, Hey, we need food. Where can we get food? The countryside. Let's just take it. Which People are not a huge fan of. Yeah, I was going to say that. Because um, they need that. Which could have some echoes of uh, of a few things you might uh, recognize today, Bethany. Mm-hmm. You and I being from very rural parts of the country and understanding where that conflict may lie with urban centers. So it's not a new concept. Yeah. And I think this is a great personification of it as far as like political. Oh, my God. I'm so excited. Okay. I'm yeah, and, and so the 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 military stuff that I was mentioning earlier, the kind of ebbs and flows, what you get is the peasants caught in the worst possible situation or peasants or just anybody in the countryside. Right. So there are these armies moving around. They are fighting each other ish, but they really need soldiers. So how do they get soldiers? They conscript soldiers. They conscript the people around them. And so what ends up happening is. There are many cases. Go ahead. Like force them, basically. Yes. Yes. Okay. okay. So I mean, I figured I was like, and you either join us or we'll kill you. That sounds yeah, very, pretty much very, yeah, very, very Russian. Well, join us. Yeah. <laughs> and to be fair, like I, I'm not going to blame this just at the feet of the Russians. Like this happens in a lot of places, but but what happens yeah, in Russia? What happens in Russia is you get these two sides where, you know, one side will will move into an area. They will maybe take prisoners from the local community and hold them as like ransom for, you know, the, the men who are conscripted into the army. Once you get in the army, discipline can be very harsh. Sometimes that's a little more lax than others for mostly disorganizational reasons. And and so it's a very tough time to be a rural Russian at this time. Uh, very rough time. Wow. That sucks. You're getting yeah. fucked from both sides. Yeah. So, and, 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 you know. and they're in such a horrible situation. So like reading this, like, uh, so I also grew up in a very rural area of Northwest Missouri. 
And so reading this is like, oh man, like they just be because uh these these people in the countryside, like they aren't as organized as other groups, you know, like if, if something were to happen in like the cities, there are workers unions, there are other groups where they have sort of just a, a, a an organization that could handle things maybe. Whereas like in the countryside, like you have small little groups of peasants that are totally helpless to, to what is happening around them. Wow. Like, okay, really quickly, like Bethany's familiar with the idea of co-ops. That did not yeah. exist. Like there's nothing, there's nothing for you right. to depend on and help you if that makes sense. Well, especially okay. since you're out in the middle of nowhere to begin with and you're you're more focused on uh, you're growing the crops and feeding people. And here you have, you know, you know, mainly it's just your family or, you know, friendly neighbors from time to time with a, you know, harvest. Well, feeding yourself at, and just trying to make a living off of what you've got. And then somebody comes and says, this is mine now. Well, it doesn't seem like a fair shake or a fair, yeah. I'd be like, bitch, let me see your hands. Where's your blisters? Okay. You didn't totally plant. You didn't do nothing. You didn't do none work. Uh -uh. But to be fair, that's everything they knew before that. So it's not that far out of their way of recognition of just because somebody's saying it's for you. It's it's sort of that same shakedown they've had for centuries. It doesn't really matter who's doing it. It's the same feeling and shakedown in rural areas. Right? And they also uh, the 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 rural areas are, are one of those or the people who live there are one of those groups that don't really have a side representing them in the conflict. So, so you, you have, we've already talked a little bit about the communists, but the whites aren't necessarily going to help them that much oh, yeah, either. No. The, the, yeah, the, they don't give a shit about them. Yeah, and they are, the whites are in this weird spot where they can't actually commit to, even if they wanted to, even if the white, some of the white leaders wanted to, they couldn't actually commit to any real reforms to what was happening to the people in the in the rural areas because they are backed by so many people that would be hurt by those reforms, right? So like the whites are heavily dependent on the landowners, the industrialists, the, the sort of businessmen of Russian society. And so that makes it very difficult for them to commit to real reforms, even though that could have been the thing that would have helped them as well uh, during their attempts to gather support really quickly can i say bethany let me explain this to you in simplest terms they're gonna still view these people as fucking serfs uh and that's ultimately how they want it to be even though it's not officially on the books anymore that they're serfs that mindset hasn't changed a, a vast deal and then you've got on the other side oh we're doing this for your benefit it will eventually be your benefit blah 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 and they're taking this but either way they're still fucked right no i was going to say like it's like it, honestly it sounds a little bit like damned if they do damned you're if they exactly do. right bethany look at you <laughs> nailing it nailing it you got this yes so, I mean, that makes, I mean, I'm, I understand why they would be like, well, I guess, I guess we're going to give up our land then. Like what else, you know, kind of thing. Like, it's just kind of like a, well, what else, what else can we do in this situation? Yes, Kara. Can I just add, and this is more of a question this time, I promise. 
would you say like the conception of the white to like your rule kind of disenfranchised from both sides people was influenced by the participation of foreign countries because i would say like if i were a peasant in siberia or wherever and i knew that half the people on the whites were not even like russian that were people you know from britain or france i would be like okay they're only interested in preserving the status quo which already does not benefit me foreign assistance is a really interesting topic because you can you have to kind of look at it in two separate areas. So there's the like material assistance that is provided to the whites. So you're talking about supplies, weapons, ammunition. That is undeniably a benefit to the whites. You know, it helps them stay in the war. But when you actually look at the, when troops are sent, so there's there's a few instances where troops are sent to Russia. There's There are British troops that are sent to Northern Russia uh, with the excuse that they are guarding war supplies that had been on their way to Russia when when Russia uh, exited the war. And then they do a little adventuring up there, but they're never in numbers enough to really make a huge difference. There are French troops in the Crimea. They are sent there mostly against their will. They are mostly... They don't really help that much. I think they launch one attack, but don't actually get to the part where they're attacking enemies. They just walk in that direction for a bit. And then <laughs> and then in Siberia, American and Japanese troops will land at Vladivostok uh, for that's reasons. Far east, yeah, and then I'm that's not mistaken. Yeah, that and that's all the way on the Pacific. So Vladivostok is all the way on the other side of the Trans-Siberian Railway at Vladivostok. They they also do things, but are not really super critical to the course of the war. But what this does is it gives the communists an incredible propaganda weapon because their line from the beginning has been that the whites are are patsies or puppets of the of the Western capitalists, right? The the great enemy of of mm. communism, the, the Western the capitalists, so to speak. Yeah, exactly, and so. As soon as troops from Western Europe or from America start landing in Russia, it's proved, right? It's that we are being invaded by foreigners. They are supporting these other people, uh, you know, that yeah. they are supporting the whites. And, and so it does make a meaningful difference. I, I don't know so much about the people in the countryside. I think um, there's a tendency to put too high of a level of like political awareness on a lot of people that are participating in the civil war. Uh, a right. lot of people just, just start trying to live. Uh, but the one place that it does make a huge difference is in former army officers and other, other past sort of members of the Russian state. Right. So a lot of, a lot of people who used to be in government positions or in the army don't really support the Bolsheviks don't support Bolshevik policies in a, in a large way, I should say. But when their country is being invaded, they sort of turn into Russians. And, and the Bolsheviks play into this, right? If you were to look at Bolshevik prop propaganda in, let's say, pre-1918 or pre-1919, they are like railing against nationalism, railing against like these old versions of states that are you know, things like the, the concept of Russia. But then as soon as these invasions, these, these troops start arriving, 
suddenly they're like, hey, rally to the colors of Russia. Let's let's go. And it does make a meaningful difference in the number of people supporting the Reds. And, and it's it's specifically the very important groups of people that bring skills, that bring experience, uh, which is very helpful to especially the Red Army. Huh. Huh. I mean, it's smart. It's smart to capitalize on that. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, why not? Because simple country folk are going to look at that and, and see that people are invading and they're going to be more apt to conform or not conform, but definitely sway themselves to something that they said that they weren't interested in or they're like, no, 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 no. And they're like, well, wait a minute. Who are they and what is happening? So, I mean, I get like, I get why it would be easy to, you know, pull that kind of trick in that card and, yeah. and turn people either towards or, or against you know, in, in a sense. So, wow. I mean, I hate to break it to you, or I hate to say it, but damn, they were really fucking smart. Yeah, they, they, they knew. Smart. They knew how to you, control the people. I mean. Yeah, you, you could really, you can you can disagree or agree with, with sort of communist policies at this, during this period, but they are very skilled in what they are trying to do. Right. So uh, this is something you see kind of um, in other groups in Russia as well. But the Bolshevik, the, the bulk of the Bolshevik sort of apparatus was built up in, in a time when the czars were in power. Right. And this is this is the same for socialists and others in Russia where they are used to, you know, building up ways to control things uh, sort of underground. They have you know, informants, they have these sorts of things that they are really good at getting information, at executing plans, at, at things like that. And that, that really becomes apparent during the Civil War. Uh, mm-hmm. They are, they're very good, you know, coming into a another city or another town and being able to turn people against each other, of finding informants on other people to break the trust of the local population and then use that to their advantage. It's just insane for me to to wrap my head around it. It really um, it really is blowing my mind right now. It's quite that. objectively impressive. Like yeah, like all part like all partisan viewing aside, the abilities of them to do so and exploit with such ability. I mean, would you say there were what were the disadvantages they had that they had to combat largely? Yeah, so they they definitely had some disadvantages. Like, you know, they they didn't have great support in the countryside. That was constantly a problem. They were surrounded by enemies, like literally surrounded. You have enemies in, you know, going counterclockwise. You know, you've got Finland, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, people in Ukraine, the whites. You've got people in Central Asia. You have the... the World's against you. Yeah, they do. And... But at the same time, and they do have economic problems, they have huge economic problems that they do not have the ability to solve. Like you can't puzzle your way out of the economic problems that they are in during the Civil War, you know, not being able to import anything and having your country torn up by war at the same time is the worst combination. Um, The morale for Russians 
had to have been like piss poor. I mean, it already was for quite a while, but my God, like when you think like the average people's life, then it's absolutely horrifying. Like it's almost unimaginable. So, so one of the interesting things is the, if you read about some of the military engagements, they are incredibly dependent on small groups of very dedicated soldiers, right? So, so the, the armies were big, you know, the, the red army gets up into the millions, but it's, they're always quite dependent on small groups of very motivated soldiers to actually execute on attacks or, or to have successful defenses. And that's part of it, right? Because it's it's challenging to motivate a huge number. So you just need some people, you know, holding unimportant areas while you have your your units that actually care about what is happening as your sort of your vanguard or your, you know, shock troops. Yeah. That makes sense. That is interesting. That's different than most other conflicts, I think. Like I guess, what you're describing. So one of the more famous, infamous, something like that, events of the Civil War is the terrors. So uh, here you're talking about the Red Terror and the White Terror. Um, And so these are, when we talked about earlier about how uh, somebody's political views may shift how they portray these events, I think this is a lot of, of where that comes into play because these events are both sides just inflicting violence on people for a variety of reasons. And so there's kind of two different kinds uh, on both sides. There is like, there's random violence. So this is violence that occurs everywhere for a huge number of reasons. And then there's sort of what I call capital T terror, which is targeted political violence against political enemies. And uh, again, I, I try to emphasize this again and again. There is a red terror. There is a white terror. They're both doing what I would consider to be horrible things. So it's it's important to say, though, that this is happening within a society that had been under the czars for a very long time. And within that society, there is a a culture, a tradition of imprisonment and violence against um political dissidents, right? So people who don't agree with the current regime's sort of method of thinking, Uh, both the socialists and the other people on the whites side. And then, of course, the Bolsheviks had been on the receiving end of this imprisonment, of this violence in previous years and decades. And so that shifts how they view their actions. But so we're going to talk about the Red Terror first. We're going to talk about some of the specifics of what happened. And then we'll talk about the White Terror and some of that. So for the Red Terror, the the first sort of organized Red Terror happens in the fall of 1918, so September uh, timeframe. And this is after an attempted assassination of Lenin uh, that occurs, uh, I believe, in very late August. And this causes um, a shift in how the Bolsheviks are interacting with the other political parties that make up the the red cause. So these are the people like the social revolutionaries or the SRs is how they're usually referred to, or the Mensheviks. I was going to refer to them as like the undecided. <laughs> <laughs> so, so 
and these groups are what you might consider or what we could probably consider just more moderate socialists, right? So they believe in that they were some of the the leaders of the first revolution, the first Russian revolution in early 1917. And they believe in a more conciliatory socialism instead of a violent socialism, which is where the Bolsheviks come in. But so this first line of uh, this first terror is very targeted against political um, dissidents. And this is where um, organizations like the Cheka or the, uh, I have the whole name here, the Extraordinary Commission for the Struggle of Counter-Revolution and Sabotage, which I, I don't have the Russian for, but I bet it's good. Well, and, like it would be good. <laughs> and so, so they are finding people, they are finding the leaders of these other groups and sort of taking care of them in the, the mob boss kind of way. And I actually have a quote here that, that I quite like from um, the, the, the Cheka is led by Zerzinski. And one of his deputies would actually sort of write down the objectives. Like these were one of the, the writings of the object, objectives of the terror that were given to, to some of the members. And it says, quote, we are not waging war against individual persons. We are exterminating the bourgeoisie as a class. During the investigation, do not look for evidence that the accused acted in deed or word against Soviet power. The first question that you ought to put are, to what class does he belong? What is his origin? What is his education and profession? And it is these questions that ought to determine the fate of the accused. In this lies the significance and essence of the Red Terror. Wow. So, so you can see where that's going. <laughs> and, ah. and so so that is the the, hmm. the numbers of the, the numbers of people who are sort of targeted by this are it's hard to know. Um it's it's probably in the tens of thousands, um, with thousands more arrested. And it's <laughs> it's it's a very violent sort of period of time and but this is what they do is they they because the two terrors the white terror and the red terror are kind of happening simultaneously both sides use what happening what's happening on the other side to justify their own actions right so so of course we talk go ahead oh i'm just gonna say of course of, of course, course there's and so on the the white side, the white terrors are a little more confusing to kind of talk about because they're not quite as structured, not quite as organized. And there was no really strong central leadership um, in the whites. There, there were the military leaders, but even they were split geographically. And so, so they're kind of all over the place. And they had a little less control over the people uh, sort of working with them. But one example is something we actually talked about earlier is how they would try and get um, military recruits. So they would, you know, come into a village. They would uh, take people to be conscripts in their army. They would maybe take prisoners to guarantee that that they would work with them. But then sometimes, you know, if if a if a village was known to maybe have supported the Reds and the whites take it over. Sometimes they just burn it to the ground and kill everybody who's there. <laughs> like this, those type Mega of actions. Mega body count. Mega body exactly. count. Exactly. 
Yeah, and so that that type of behavior, and this happens on the red, from the Reds as well, like these kind of actions. And so both sides, and, and anything could trigger the violence. Like it, it almost feels random in the same way that maybe a lot of military violence in these situations feels random. But there were also targeted violence by the whites, um, not maybe not quite as revolutionary maybe in nature as what the the reds were executing at this point but still targeted against their political enemies i guess i have a quick question yes uh, i know you 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 reference them between the reds and the whites because they they display their you know they go by colors right mm -hmm. yes and what's crazy and i guess maybe my question is uh reading through history and and accounts of these acts how is it are they able to to decipher between the two because they do seem to have some similarities when it comes to terror so i guess i'm just curious as to um that's a good question how to distinguish who did what basically were there signature things that would imply yeah not really you know the the the, the interesting part is that, especially when you're talking about this type of violence that I've been talking about uh, in the last few minutes, you're talking about, you know, military units um, that on both sides look very similar when you get down to this level. Like the average military conscript in these armies are very similar to each other, as, as similar as people can be. And so right. there isn't a, a huge differentiating factor um, in, in this type of violence. Huh. And I mean, terror is terror. So it's like, oh, I'm distinguishing that it's a terror from this particular person. Whereas, in my thinking right now, I'm 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 going, I don't care who it is. They're just terrorizing. Period. So yeah, yeah, and, just and that's to distinguish the, the the difference. I would see how that would be really kind of hard. Yeah, and you definitely get groups that are really stuck in the middle like if you read about what happens to um the the jews that are in ukraine at this period mm. um I, i've seen i've uh, seen some historians call it the let's see the the greatest suffering of jews anywhere in the world before the second world war because wow. so before the holocaust and stuff, yeah basically. yeah um and, and because what happens is is they get kind of trapped in the middle and the 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 whites end up controlling ukraine uh, kind of longer during the conflict. I just ask that they remember further back, maybe to um, the early modern period where you had the Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox face off uh, during and post time of troubles in which folks were literally cutletting and eating Jewish children. So I think that's yeah. a, you know. Yeah, you don't want to get into atrocity a bit Olympics. Preachy. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, I don't want to, but I, I think it's also, yeah. um, you know, where are you going to go? And that's part of what I call object, or objective, or objective to subjective, kind of like, of course, it seems that way in C20 that it's just unthinkable. But the reality is I, I, that's just my only thing I want to highlight. If we're going to put that in perspective, like, no, no yeah. shit is getting better long term it's far from great but long term uh no one's eating children 
and it is very problematic and and it is a great deal of horribleness is going to happen but to call it the fucking worst is uh well no 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 I bit think, lofty no i think so what he's saying is in the targeting specifically of jewish because the pogroms and stuff had all obviously been awful in russia but i think particularly the plight of the jewish being targeted in that okay I don't think he was saying it in terms of like overall violence. I think he's. But I will put to those uh, those students of. um, Well, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I I totally get the point. Yes, absolutely. I I will I will adjust my statement to say that it was incredible suffering that may or may not be the greatest suffering uh, of Jews anywhere in the world before the Second World War. but you so, can't so what argue happens with may or may not yes <laughs> and so what happens to these people is they are trapped in the middle and the the ukraine is a really odd place during the civil war because it's maybe like the most trafficked piece of geography because you have the germans who move in as i mentioned earlier in in 1918 they are hunting for food they come in they install a kind of a puppet regime in ukraine but then the war ends so the germans leave and the puppet regime falls it's taken over by the white army but they can't really control it like they can be in the cities but they can't control the countryside and this is where the 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 blacks or the anarchists um under the sort of leadership of this guy named Nestor Machno sort of uh, are the strongest but as the white army is is uh, under control of Ukraine it's it's important to state that the whites see the the Jewish people as one of the causes for the civil war, right? Oh, there wow. is there is extreme anti-Semitism, and and this is something that isn't limited just to the whites here. There is kind of um kind of globally there is the the belief that that the Jews are at least partially to blame for the the rise of communism in Russia, wow. and so that just I feel like the Jews in history just can't catch a break like ever like i really to be fair this is a much longer standing and older ideology it's not something they woke up and that the they they decided to do that day um right yeah steps back to early modern history if you will no i i know i get that it's just like at this point i'm like damn it can't they just like it's like not it's not something that somebody suddenly made up it's a long-standing belief in russia no matter what your political party fucking was i guess from like early modern to now it's not a new scapegoat tactic it's not something that they take into the second world war it's something that is long-standing which that's is, true because that that was the case in imperialist Russia, hundred percent. Like there, I been, think you'll find a lot of the basis for the belief in an Aryan nation and a final solution actually find their basis in Russia itself. And um, that's it's not a new theory. That's something that Russia has always been into. And it, to call back cutlining and eating children, not to say that it was it was maybe not the worst in terms of numbers, but it wasn't something that was uniquely 
caught up in a Polish or an Eastern Orthodox war that was blamed for the degradation of whether it be Catholicism or Eastern Orthodox in the area. This is a long-standing problem in Russia. I just don't want it to be construed as, like, don't think of it as new. This well, is no, old. No, I, never, I never thought it as new. I, honestly, from even just doing um, on this day in history research, I've discovered that literally every day in history, all the way back to like BC times, Jews have been persecuted. So it's definitely like, I'm like, damn, when, is, when are they going to be okay? Are they ever going to be okay at this point? Like, I mean, I'm just, I, it's the, uh, I, I just feel, I feel bad because it's like constantly, no matter where in the world we go in history, the Jews are the bad quote unquote people and we must eliminate them all. And it's just kind of crazy. Like not saying, please don't take what I just said out of context. Um, I'm just saying like in general, it's just kind of crazy to hear it again in history. Like here we are again. It's It's just kind of. No, I agree. Yeah. yeah. It's frustrating. <laughs> um, so, so, you know, this violence happens and, and in Ukraine, it's not great. And then the Reds come back in after the whites are kicked out and they aren't that much. They, they are not gentle to the people of Ukraine. Uh, we'll just say that and that, that will continue into the future years. Um, but but the one the, the one thing I want to leave with here on the terrors is, first of all, that the leadership on both sides knows that it's happening they and they don't do things to stop it right so the the white leaders the white generals and leaders they they know it is happening the the red the the communist leaders all the way up to lenin there are you know orders with lenin's signature on them trying you know mentioning doing these type of things and they both you they both um sort of how they portray the information of what is happening is different on both sides so you you get the communists who are sometimes very open about what they're doing right they are they are using it as a uh, a stick right they're like look at what we did like this is we are we are the revolution we are here we are going to change society and then on the white side they are trying to <laughs> almost desperately suppress information about what their troops are doing because they know if it gets back to Paris or London or Washington DC it could cause problems with the people that are helping them it just sounds like what is like we're here we're queer and we're here to rule like and the other ones are like no we're in the closet like, it just sounds very very polar opposite to me mm -hmm. and I can't help but laugh at the terror terror yeah. right now <laughs> yeah in and so, like, uh, I think there, there's there are no clean hands on either side is of kind of the 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 thought I want to leave with there. Um, and also, you know, when talking about just straight up numbers, it's impossible to know. Like, I've seen numbers ranging from a hundred thousand, three hundred thousand. Uh, the number that sometimes gets brought up is 1.7 million. And these are people who just die from terror activity. This this very non-military violence, I guess you should say, non, non-military, non-famine, non-disease violence. And I will say I'm not equipped to tell you which one of those numbers is more correct. Uh, but it does get a pretty wide range. 
<laughs> well, and I feel like back then it would be kind of hard to like put a specific number, like yeah. an exact number on a historical body count. Let's just a lot. It's 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 better than writing in the history book. A lot of people died. They're giving us a, at least, yeah. Let's just. It can range from a few thousand to one point five million. No, no big deal. You know, no big deal. Move along. No. Well, and I think you have to understand too. There, you know, when these kind of acts of atrocity were committed, this wasn't. These people were buried, and there were censuses performed of how many people dying. These are, you know, you have mass graves kind of situation, like a hole in the side of the road. You shoot a few people, put them in, you know, move along. And besides the people that were, you know, family members impacted, I'm sure there's a lot of people that to this day had missing relations, you know, that disappeared one way or another. Well, just, yeah. And I'm assuming that the disappearances happened quite a bit back then, too. You know, um, that's crazy. I will not disagree. Um, so, uh, how this how the war kind of ends right so we talked a little bit about how it beginning how it began sort of some of the events that have occurred how it ends is the the whites so kolchak fails in his attack towards moscow out of siberia he's essentially removed from the board um there is an attack out of estonia towards leningrad by a group of white soldiers also fails i guess is it, it's called petrograd at this point but it eventually becomes Leningrad. They also fail to, to reach the city, although they come reasonably close. So then the, the whites in southern Russia under Denikin just decide that they have, to, they have to try something. So they try an attack. It fails as well. Denikin is then removed from leadership, replaced by uh, a guy called General Wrangel. He again attempts to attack out of Crimea again every time their forces are becoming less and less. And really by this point, and you could probably make the argument throughout the entire course of the Civil War that the the whites are militarily disadvantaged enough that they can never like from a military sense, they can never just win the war. But what they're continually hoping for is that the strains being placed on the communist society due to the disagreements between Earl and rural, the food shortages, the economic problems, all that, that they kind of collapse from within and that they are ready to take advantage of that. Right. But that doesn't work out at all. <laughs> and so eventually they are trapped in Crimea and forced to evacuate anybody who can be evacuated. And that's kind of when that part of the Civil War ends. And this is uh, November 1920, I think, is is when those final evacuations happen. Ooh, the Roaring Twenties. Yeah. Well, it also, yep. it's interesting because, you know, this shows you, Bethany, because, you know, Crimea was in the news several years ago. Crimea has always been a place of contention geographically, um, historically. So it's interesting you know, to see still that um, Russian-Ukrainian tension today. I mean, that's yeah. it's been an ongoing source of conflict. So I just wanted to tie that in there. Okay. And so if we, if we look at the Russian Civil War as a whole and to tie it back to the name of the podcast, 
body count. Um, let's talk about sort of the numbers on these things, the the, the top level numbers. Um, we first have to have a conversation. I kind of forgot about this about when the civil war ends. When do you stop counting um, sort of deaths and casualties and, and and things as civil war and not post civil war? And so there is disagreement on this uh, among historians because um, there's a few different ways you can look at it. So you can look at well, when to when does the white opposition, the formal white, we have an army opposition end? Uh, you're looking at like November 1920 is what I said for that. Or do you have to look at when Russia made peace with all of the nations that broke away from the Russian Empire during this period? So uh, you've got, you know, Finland, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania and Poland all successfully break away from the Russian Empire. And that happens in, you know, early 1921. You could also say, okay, when does Russia actually actually experience peace? And that kind of stretches your time period out into the mid twenties. Like they are, they are chasing rebels in Central Asia. I think even until the thirties, uh, that kind of originate from this time period. But if you take like the most expansive definition of that, which I think is probably appropriate, you're looking at you know an end date of maybe late 1921, maybe even into 1923, when sort of the last major groups are taken care of. And by that point, uh, in terms of overall, you know, numbers on people killed, mm -hmm. um, pretty variable. I've seen numbers as high as 10 million, uh, around 7 million. I've, I think I've even seen as high as 12 million. Um, and most of those are dead right so you have right. maybe maybe uh, 1.5 million military wounded in that number uh, from actual military confrontations but the rest of that is is deaths either in military deaths or civilian deaths due to terrors or disease or famine during this period uh, there's a really there's a really big famine in Russia starting in 1921 that that causes a lot of those deaths, which um, probably should be attributed to the Civil War, at least in my opinion. Hmm. But this is a historical thing, a historical, you know, it, it does happen. And, and not to mention it happens a lot in wars, too. I feel like every time we talk about a war, there's some form of you know, plague or famine or something that wreaks havoc amongst the people. So it's like, how many people really did die from the well, war? It's a companion of armies always, Bethany, when you have that many people together drinking shitty water and shitting in latrines, yeah. like it's always right. going to accompany it. Yeah. And, and even if you give the most generous uh, sort of assumption about what would have happened to these people who were experiencing famine uh, due, due, uh, due to weather and other reasons, uh, even if you give the most generous sort of interpretation of what, per, what, how they would have been helped, it's difficult to know whether or not like it would have made a huge difference on the number of casualties because of um, sort of That's how things were treated. Excellent fucking point, actually. Yeah, like, oh my god, that's such a great yeah. point. Yeah, you're exactly right. Like, who, who would have? I mean, it was coming. The one thing we know about Russia, Bethany, it always has bodies. 
and it yeah. always has endless there. amounts of people. It always, it's, it the just, it's the way it the, is. But the bodies of the book. I mean, it's just a, a common occurrence. And it's there. A, a political body farm, I would say, almost indefinitely. And, and also, this is happening uh, while and after Russia just came out of the First World War, where they had, you know, three million deaths and four million military wounded during that conflict. Yep. Like, th this is one long conflict in Russia. Th there's no real break in between. So, um, plus, that, that, let's also look at like shortage of supplies. If every other country has to ration during wartime, Bethany, let's go ahead and consider that. They've just been in a world war. They've already been in that same state. And now you're coming out of it and immediately turning around and walking into a civil war. So if you weren't screwed already, imagine yeah. how doubly screwed you are now. The political motivations for leaving the war um, on the Reds. That's what's one of the interesting things about how the civil war um, devolves to me because part of what you were saying, the additional, the frankly, the abysmal casualty rate due to everything we discussed um, during World War One. Part of the motivate, like part of what appealed to a lot of people was you have no game, you have no skin in the game in this. This is an imperial war. That was part of what the Reds were selling people. Um, do you think that ended up backfiring at all, like politically? Because I mean. Really, it, it, they remove themselves from one war, right? Like, they're not fighting the Germans anymore. Great, right? But then they immediately are taken into a, a huge domestic conflict. Or did it just have ramifications on the Russians as a whole? And not just, I don't know, that, that would have been me as a peasant. Like, hey, you're taking us out of the war. But then look. <laughs> yeah, I think, so the, the reason that the, the Bolsheviks get out of the war are... Uh, a lot of it is ideological. So a lot of their support base, like they had been campaigning on get us out of this capitalist Western conflict that is First just there conflict. to. Yeah. Yeah. Like we don't want to be a, a part of this imperialist conflict. Like that was such a huge part of their message sort of before they came to power. That That's how they that's one of the big things that differentiated them from the people that they took over from. So this would have been the 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 SRs and the Mensheviks from the first revolution is that they still supported staying in the conflict, right? The Russians launch a military offensive in the summer of 1917 between the two revolutions. And so the Bolsheviks were one of the few groups within Russia being like, this war is worthless. Get us out. So they, they basically, they, they deliver on that promise. Like when they come to power, they immediately start negotiating with the Germans uh, the negotiations don't go great, but they get it done. They start releasing sort of secret documents. Uh, the world first learns about the Sykes-Picot agreement to cut up the Middle East from the Russians because they Damn. leak it to, to to the world. It's like this is just this is this is the kind of thing Wiki that we leaks. are saying is bad. No, just kidding. <laughs> WikiLeaks, the yeah. original. Good God, that's the ramifications of that. Wow, like. It almost makes you understand more why the Western world was like, oh, shit, you know, if if the Bolsheviks take control, this is bad when you put it yeah. like that, like when you explain that and add that point in. Um, yeah, e e even early on, there was a lot of um, real concern from 
Western democracies or Western, Western countries uh, about what communism was and what um, it was doing to Russia, right? So again, like the, the Bolsheviks want to completely remake society. They want to destroy the old sort of structures of power and create their own. And there's a lot of people in other countries that don't want that to happen to them. And so that oh, dictates no a lot of their response. <laughs> and I mean, it's interesting to note, I think that Marx would have been surprised that this would have taken off in Russia. Um, and it's also important to note, having sat through a USSR class where we had to read Lenin, um, Lenin basically took Marx's ideas to a different level to basically adjust them for Russia, Bethany. So he wasn't like completely reading the Bible of Marx and Engels to explain it lightly, right? Like he adapted it knowing and recognizing the unique challenges that Russia had and tried to adapt it and use it as a weapon, so to speak, a political weapon, um, which obviously brought fruit, so to speak, for Lenin. Right. Um, and honestly, I feel like if there's a weapon that they're going to use at this point, it seems that the politicalness is kind of the way to go. At this, at this point, it, it feels like it's the only way, only option. You know, do you think it was always obvious that Lenin would have been the leader, like from what you've read? Yes, I think there is maybe a point in time where that wasn't going to happen. But I think he did a really good job of kind of by the time the Bolsheviks get to power, he has constructed the the power of the 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 structure of the party around himself. So essentially that there was no chance for anybody else to really come in. But um, I did want to go back to your point about uh, Marx being surprised about Russia. So. I think even the people in Russia, even the Bolsheviks were a little bit concerned about their ability to execute what they wanted to do in Russia. And that's why, like, if, if you look at sort of their writings and their speeches and their propaganda at this point, they are very focused on spreading the revolution into Western Europe. So uh, the common turn, which will be what develops. But yeah. Yeah. And at this point, it takes the form of they, uh, the Polish Soviet war, which happens uh, in like 19. 19 to 1921 where the where the the red army invades the new country of poland that was created in the aftermath of the first world war and so their purpose their overriding goal is to get to germany because they think if they can get a revolution going in germany given germany's economic position given its you know military power that it has just um sort of demonstrated over the previous years that that is going to give them the the springboard they need into Western Europe. And that's why sometimes you'll see the Battle of Warsaw that happens in the Polish-Soviet War kind of build as the battle that saved, you know, Western Europe from the Bolsheviks because the Red Army was defeated at Warsaw. And that's the furthest uh, west it would come until 1944, I think. Mm -hmm. That sounds about right, but I'd have to like look at the, the technicality, if you will. I know the exact date. Nobody worry, okay? I've got it all. <laughs> Meanwhile, we have we have certain listeners, like I, I can think Jessica and Adam will know right away, like, no, it's this date. Well, please slide into our DMs and confirm this. But in any case, 
it's it's the fur it's the furthest west that they are able to go for a great stretch of time basically mm-hmm. is the nutshell yeah not that that like makes any of the western sort of political leaders less concerned about communism because the hatred for communism will you know influence a lot of events in the interwar period that is the understatement if not understatement of the 20th century like when you studied this period like when you were first covering it on your show were there anything that like was there anything pertaining to like the russian civilian life and the atrocities that they i guess experienced that really stood out to you so i think a lot of what struck me um is kind of what we were talking about earlier with kind of the 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 hopelessness of a lot of the situations that people found themselves in um uh, around you know their their food is getting forced requisitioned um just taken away from them and then there's violence and then there's very little that they can do to defend themselves and and also you know we talked a lot about the rural stuff like you know in the cities um you have people who also are just put in situations that that there's nothing they can do against the situation that they're in. You know, there are um, there are people in the cities who have a family that they cannot feed. There is not food available for their children, and, and there's nothing they can do about that. And it's it's really kind of heartbreaking to to read about some of that and and an experience like be put in that kind of mindset. No, I, I, I think anytime I have studied like civil wars throughout history, that's one of the most striking things to me is how it impacts the civilian population, like your non um, factions. So the people that fall in between or accidentally become casualties in some way or another, like I, I would not want to find myself that way. And even in a historical context, this is why we emphasize, I think time and time again, Time travelers, you do not really want to go back in time because you're not going to end up as a king in, you know, an absolute monarch Europe. You're more likely statistically to be a peasant um, in anywhere pretty much in the world. Um, Let's see. Another question I had for you, um, because we've talked about, like we said, the political kind of philosophy, so to speak, of um, Lenin. How would this have been effectively communicated? Because in my mind, I'm not thinking of the population as as literate, if you will, because there were still a great amount of people that were not, you know, beyond maybe being able to write their name because that was pretty important regardless. Um, How, I guess, did these varying factions communicate their cause? Because I know we discussed some of the ways that the Bolsheviks would kind of infiltrate, so to speak. But in areas where people may not have been able to read or write, how do you go about that? So uh, one of the things that that um, it's always good to keep in mind with this conflict and in other conflicts like it is that a lot of people didn't really fully understand what was happening, right? They, they were mostly apolitical in their outlooks. They did not necessarily support one side or the other. And maybe they didn't know what was happening really at all. But there are things, you know, at this point there is, there's radio, there's telegraph, there's... Oh, that's true. There, yeah, I keep forgetting there's, about there's, the radio. Yeah, there's communication technologies like that that are present in there that, that do help. But also a lot of it is, you know, if you want to send a message to a place, 
um, and you want things to happen in that place, you just have to send people from people that you trust, people from your sort of circle to that place to do it. And so that's why during the war, Trotsky ends up going from one side of Russia to the other, literally on a train to sort of manage the Red Army, because the best way to make sure that things happen, make sure that people know what they're supposed to do and why is to just go there. That's, I think, true in almost any case, though. Like, I think it's like you said, with Russia, it's more noticeable because of the vast size. Mm -hmm. Like, Vladivostok um, is, like you said, it's on the Pacific coast. So it's not where I think most people think of with, like, Russia, right? You think St. Petersburg, what's today St. Petersburg, let me clarify, Mm -hmm. and Moscow. You don't think of, like, way out there. But I think that's what made, like, Trotsky and Lenin successful is that they were willing to go out to those places. And I think that's an important but scary note. The the only thing worse than the name of Leningrad, St. Petersburg, Petrograd, is when you get in weird date situations where the switch of the Russians from the Mm. Julian to the Gregorian calendar actually matters. (laughs) And then things get really confusing really fast. So get this, Bethany. I think you'll really enjoy this. Um, In Russian history, they were still on an old calendar up through what was the date that it switched over it was it was 1918 like it was during the (laughs) time we're talking about and so it gets really confusing like because so so they were using the julian calendar which uh was invented a long time ago and it's a little different than our current calendar we use the gregorian calendar in that the julian calendar has i think 28 days every month and then it instead of a leap day it has like a leap two weeks sometimes it has, so it's like, way different. Yeah. yeah. Like, wow. And so you can find sources sometimes that refer to like the dates of the revolutions in different, like some, sometimes they'll do the translation for you and sometimes they won't. <laughs> okay. So that makes so much more sense because like I said, I, I've done, I'm, uh, you know, different uh, on this day in history research, you know, kind of thing. And that would explain why. The October you know, revolution like, happens in November. <laughs> do, you, do you remember really quickly, Bethany, when we talked about way in the time of the early Romanovs that switch legally happened? Yes, I do Here remember that. Here is the problem. It's not. It's like if today America switched to, uh, I don't know, the metric system, it doesn't mean that it would happen <laughs> immediately it will not happen over it's not gonna happen overnight it's gonna happen over centuries being the point if that makes sense especially since us americans are like you can't tell me what to do i live in america (laughs) well basically yeah now i think for me like you said those numbers are hard to compute you know as far as like people like even Mm -hmm. and you have to think bethany i'm just thinking in terms of Obviously, there weren't as many billions of people then as there were today. And I think one of the things that struck me, um, I had seen 1917, which isn't related to this particular discussion we're talking about. But one of the things that blew me away from like this era is that the takeaway that I when I went to like look up like the percentage of like population that some of these countries had after World War One, like in percentages of the then population absolutely insane um well i'm trying to think of like an yeah, exact it, figure but so so there's and definitely even those like, were extremely fallible 
like, uh, you know, there wasn't it, it, a true census. Downplayed. Yeah, exactly. And, and it, uh, the, the, I, I always like to bring up the fact that it also didn't apply to society equally. Right. So you um, may only lose, I think, some of the top nations in the First World War were around 5% of their population. But you have to look at who specifically that is affecting and how it totally decimated very specific cohorts of, of generations because of where they fell on the age timeline during those four years. So, you know, if you're a certain age, then, you know, you're not going to go to the front um, during the war. But if you are a certain age, Everybody you know <laughs> is in the army, and there's a really good chance that something happens to you. Yeah, and wow. that's less of the case with the United States because, as we know, we we entered much later. Um, mm-hmm. So, but when you look at a lot of the countries that had been in it from the beginning, you're 100% right. There's this um, conception of a lost generation, which gets coined in several terms, literary and otherwise. But he's absolutely right. Like certain, you know, your young men of a certain generation are getting wiped. So there's a lot of societal ramifications of that, of course. You have a lot of women that are raising kids um, that are widowed, and it it further strains economic crises, including in Russia, I can only imagine, right? Because then you have to have the women going to work to provide and be the breadwinner, and it's a whole, I just, again, I'm just trying to think of what it would have been like as as a person on the, on the ground level, so to speak. Honestly, it feels like same shit, different day <laughs> when this time period, um, you know, it, it parallels. It, yeah. Yeah. It just, it, there's just so many things that I, even in this own, you know, time period that it, have led us up to it. And I know that are happening at the same time too. So it's just kind of like a mind boggling mind-blowing situation to understand and wrap your head around the fact that there literally is so much happening and yet at the same time so many people dying like leaving this world and it's insane and the scariness I guess I guess the scariness is where it's like getting worse I mean it was already scary don't get me wrong it wasn't like all of a sudden it was scary it just it's feeling like these people don't have a choice and continually don't have a choice i i just have to say bethany i mean isn't in essence that the entire history of russia and that the people don't have a choice my darling right um, and, and I guess that's again, no matter who's an advocate of the people and i think that's an important takeaway is that yeah. um people never really get a choice yeah, and I feel like I've said this word, this phrase, throughout this episode. But damn, this sucks. Like, I feel like I have said that so many times since you started. And honestly, no, and what to clarify, it sucks for the people. The episode right. is great. No, no, no. <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> yeah, sucks for the people. The episode was great because I've no, been like, no. thank God. Thank God I do this off of battery power, so I've been able to hear all of it (laughs) and none of it. I'm so that's not what I meant. I'm so what I meant is like I feel like I was just girl. We were to you. She was fucking with you. Oh my god! I was like, oh, 
good. What? I just I feel like that's just been kind of my thing. Listening. I to promise the- nobody listening to this episode thought it was shitty. Right, <laughs> and, and then, then some. Like, the I, have a question, I have a question for the intellectual, which, as we know, is our guest. Who's that? You. Okay, <laughs> so my question is more. We're going to take it back. We're going to go to 1918 for a minute. Why do you think that? Because, and even a little bit before 1918, because obviously by this point, the czar had abdicated. Because I want to get a little hint of Romanoff in there for Bethany here, if you will. And Jessica, you know what direction I'm going with this. Yeah. What were the political ramifications and how do I put it? snuffing the Romanovs. I can't think of a better way to put it in this moment. I'm sorry. Um, because, you know, for a while they were at Yekaterinburg, right? Like, that was where they would eventually yeah. be taken out. But yeah, I would rather it- guess answer this than me because yeah. I'm not going to put it in uh, very nice terms. So, so uh, I have actually been asked this before. I got asked this. Um, I did the Russian Civil War episodes for History of the Great War about a year and a half now, I think, uh, in the past. And I actually got asked this in an email. And I think the the answer I kind of came up with is I think maybe it had less of an impact than you might think. And, and the reason I say that is because the the whites as they existed as the primary threat to the communists the monarchist sort of element of that group was probably probably not going to be the group that came out on the upside if the communists were overthrown so the the monarchists certainly supported the whites they certainly did not want the communists to win two evils basically yeah, but I don't know if they would have had the power to um, really assert control and sort of put the monarchy back in. I think that the 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 czar having abdicated yeah, earlier in 1917, and even like you know, if you pick somebody else from the tree, uh, if you want Nick to, out, yeah, yeah, I think that you're going to you're you're not going to find the support for that, right? So a lot of what the whites were fighting for as much as you can determine because they were super hesitant to make any real political statements or, you know, you know, sort of commit to anything is that the, the government probably would have looked a lot like it did before the second Russian revolution, like before the Bolsheviks took power. Like with the Duma. So like after 1905, mm-hmm. basically it would have been like a flashback. Mm-hmm. So yeah. to me, that explains why, how do I put it? Why the whites didn't win out. Right. Because it's, if you're if you're talking ideological battles, the whites really had none. Even though obviously the Reds were not completely together, yeah, they had variations of okay. Well, we have certain things that would line up together. Whereas with the whites, you know, there were some people that liked you know the czar. Very few at that point. You had some people that would have supported the brother of the czar or who's next in line to be right. in charge, but. Do you think the Reds, like, collectively just wanted to completely, how do I put it, kill the family to to make a statement? Or was it just to, t- I, I've heard varying, I guess, sources on if it was at Lenin's orders, if it was, 
I hear it, it's murky with what I've read, at least. I think that they are one of the embodiments of everything that the communists would say that they were fighting against, right? So they wanted, they saw that old imperialist sort of world structure. Bourgeoisie as the, from the West, so what they hated yeah. about the West. Yeah, like these are all this is exactly what they would say is wrong with society, right? It's the it's the capitalist, it's the monarchist, it's the imperialist. Like all of these people are the problem. And this and this um the czar first and then also those that supported him and were around him and his family, they are an embodiment of the problem, right? And and it it's from clear from earlier, like the the one thing the Reds did not have a problem with were taking care of political opponents. Um, and so, so they would do that. Yeah. I, I did want to mention one thing though. I had a really specific example here in my notes that I kind of skipped over earlier. When you talk about the whites and their political outlook or lack of concrete political views, I have a very specific example on why that hurt them that has very little to do with actual politics. So we talked about the places that were breaking away from the Russian empire during this process, uh, Baltic states, Poland. And so what happens to the whites is Denikin, this mostly happens when he's in control, he's stuck in the worst situation because if he commits to their independence, they will help the whites. They will make sure, they will do their best to make sure the whites win. But he can't mm -hmm. do that because there's too many people that support the whites that when they think Russia, they think um. the imperial Russian empire, we're not sacrificing anything. And because of that, he cannot commit to helping he these places. Shit. He cannot promise anything. And that, that totally kills their support for, for the whites. Like, and they still like, you know, they are, they're, they kind of don't actively fight the whites, but they certainly aren't doing everything they can to help. <laughs> wow. And that being said, I think both sides, sides had spin, like had a way of spinning things too. Um, because, for example, when we're talking about um, the Romanovs and what happened, there was, well, I'll put it this way, they were very proud of taking care of Nicholas. But even they were like, mm, should we acknowledge the family? You know, there were kids involved, there were servants that wouldn't have technically been bourgeoisie, so to speak. I mean, the pets were taken out. So for a little bit, and and up really until the bodies are discovered. There's kind of this murkiness about it. That's why so many conspiracies, I guess, <laughs> evolved about, oh, was there a missing Romanov girl? Um, when obviously that wasn't the case, I don't think. If you see the pictures, there are pictures online, Bethany, of the room where they were um, killed. I don't see how anyone would make it out alive. Um, and, and mind you, they withstood a lot of bullets because, and, and almost what I guess the Reds would say, the embodiment of the bourgeoisie, they had sewn jewelry into their belongings, which was, in my opinion, great body shield, but from the idealistic point, proving exactly the point that the Reds would have said, look at these people, they're going to try and escape with their, you know, shit ton of wealth that was exploited on the backs of x y and z so uh, no um that's one thing that always struck me was that 
was the eventual fate and then kind of the murkiness of the government to acknowledge the kids as much. Like I said, I don't think anyone, including the people that perpetrated the crimes, had an issue with killing Nicholas. But there are even still, even for them, you couldn't argue like a 13-year-old was a political, you know, like the women especially because, as you know, after um, Catherine the Great's dick of a son, women really couldn't assume any real power of authority. They couldn't become czar or czarina. So there was no threat from really the girls, sadly enough, in my opinion. Of course, the son of the czar, he had a a bad go of it, so to speak. How do you think um, propaganda, I guess, the role of newspapers? Because I know we touched on radio. Do you think newspaper was instrumental um, for both sides or primarily one? I would say primarily for the the communists. Um, they had a pre-existing sort of press structure uh, that they had built up during the the previous years, and they had a distribution system, and they were they were good about uh, sort of controlling the narrative in that way. And, and it certainly was important to how they spread their message um, around the country. And it's and it complimentary. Was a- Oh, I was I was just going to say, and it was effective. I mean, again, say what you want about them, but uh, they were smart. I mean, I hate to say that with the, you know, say that word and associate them with that word. But I mean, the propaganda, I've seen the, you know, propaganda. I mean, they they did well, just like they exploited the people that were coming in as foreign. Oh, the foreigners are taking over. You know, it's just it just kind of leads back. These people were, yeah, they were surrounded on all sides. Unfortunately, smart and surrounded. So I mean, I mean that. Yeah, uh, I think you see different kind of viewpoints on that. Like, um, I'm not gonna defend the the violence that they did, but I think I think um, what you see is depending on your views of communism and how you feel about it as a political ideology. It's it's very easy to uh, sort of fall into this idea that they are doing what they have to to survive in in a world that hates them, right? Um, so I never thought of it in that regard whatsoever. <laughs> and it doesn't excuse like the the violence that they did or or what they did, but like, yeah, you're right. Uh, the most powerful nations in the world were not fans of the Bolsheviks, and so they were maybe given license or they use the excuse of that to kind of do what they wanted to do. That's crazy. I you say, it's crazy. I just say, keep saying that's crazy. Cause it, <laughs> I'm just like, Oh my God, I would not want to be in Russia. I love learning about Russian history. I really think cause it's just so metal and it's so interwoven and, and, crazy (laughs) Mm -hmm. um but uh i really really um surprised myself because some of the things you were talking about i did i did remember or or it felt relatable to something else i've learned about so it's really cool and and as he emphasized it's important to note with the reds at this point at least until 21 to 23 depending on where you cut off there is not just leninist technically 
on on and I say technically because there were the Mensheviks who had basically dissolved political affiliation in around 1903-1905. So there were I think they're even referred to as like softs um, in one is one of the, the political terminology I've heard them referred as to. But, you know, it wasn't just Lenin. I think that's a big mistake people make when looking at um, the Civil War and like looking at like the Reds and the Whites is thinking any one faction is concrete. Um, Bethany, do you I mean, it sounds like I think you get that point pretty pretty clear but did you have any questions about like any of the politics surrounding it because that's a little it is a little confusing it's a it it is in a sense but i feel like that thanks to jessica and to other guests that we've kind of tiptoed around this um particular era where i feel like i've seen kind of all sides of what's going on the the spectrum (laughs) yeah like i feel like everybody's kind of touched you know in, in some sort of way it, I can't believe how quickly it all intertwines with itself. But then again, we're talking about some serious, hardcore, metal times in history. So I find that very interesting. Um, but no, I get, I get the. I like how you call them factions <laughs> because they really. I mean, they really are. A that's faction. really, really what they were. I mean, in my opinion, that's how I like compartmentalize it. I suppose. <laughs> no, I like um, that. Try think. Yeah, so what you see is the Reds are like the Lannisters, right? And so <laughs> I'm not going to go any further with that. That's as far as I had on that. But Because nobody really touches the Reds, and I feel like the Whites are, I wouldn't say that the Whites are like, um, you know, the star, uh, you know, the Starks or whatever, but like random God, I'm like trying to think of who, who the, the Whites pl- The Alliance and like that somehow... <laughs> The alliance in the last season of Game of Thrones, maybe, right? Like, no one has any concrete plan of how they want to rule after that. That's what I'm thinking. That sounds about Bran. Really? Like, okay. The ruler of the whites is Bran. Awesome. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, that's. um... No, I'm so glad you joined us tonight. Like, thank you so, so much. I'm glad we were able to do it um, because. Congratulations! You're you're expecting, I think, a kid yes. pretty soon. Yeah. So here in the next couple of weeks, I think uh, my wife would prefer it to happen in about five minutes, but I don't think that's going to happen. So uh, <laughs> all except for Kara been there. We, I mean, I understand that. Yeah, but yeah, uh, I feel for that poor woman times <laughs> a thousand. <laughs> um. No, I was there. I was that same place. Like, just let it be done. So let it be written. Let me pull the Yule Brenner. So let it be written. So let it be done. Yeah, I get it. Amen. As a woman. No, sorry. (laughs) Oh, no, I know. You're stealing my joke. I I know how it is to be that big, awful, like, version of pregnant. And it's just horrific. At least she's That's in the- why I've not decided to do it a second time. So God bless her. She's the bravest woman <laughs> in all of the world. I feel like at least it's cold. You know, I gave birth on a, in August and I was five days late. So um, in Texas. So it was hotter, hotter than two wolves, uh, two rats fucking in a wolf sock is my 
That's a very visceral um, That's image. a saying. That is a saying. I was going to say, <laughs> you sweat more in a whore in church. But that's a very Texas <laughs> saying as well. So, you know, Same. if you're pregnant oh. in August in the state of Texas, you sweat more in a whore in church. Yep. But no... So I know that we've kind of reached kind of wrap up, but what kind of sources yeah. did you draw off both with um, with like as far as your initial research, I guess, when you were doing your first podcast and then when you were what you were discussing here? Yeah, so I think there are there are definitely options when it comes to reading about this period. Um, I'd, I'd like to circle back to what I said at the beginning and that if somebody out there is listening to this and they sort of dive into to research, just kind of keep in mind um, find the biases of people and kind of keep that in mind as you move through it. You know, I, I think I read a lot of the more popular books along the way, uh, things like, you know, A People's Tragedy by Orlando Feige's, mm, which I think yep. is probably the, the most well-known. Uh, he seems to not like communism very much. Um, <laughs> but then also, uh, I wonder I, how that could be. Yeah. I, uh, I also like to recommend a, a book called The Russian Civil Wars, 1916 to 1926, um, 10 Years That Shook the World by Jonathan. We're going to call it Smiley, um, but I'm not sure how to pronounce the last name on that one. Um, but that's just The Russian Civil Wars, 1916 to 1926. Uh, you'll find it out there. Um, it it the, the reason I like it is because it, it does shine some light, as the title says, on kind of what happens after um, some other histories kind of stop in 1923, 1924. It kind of follows the story a little further, especially in the what would become the Central Asian uh, Soviet Socialist Republics. I'm going to have to check out the second one you had said. I had heard of um, the Orlando Feige's one, but I yeah. had not heard of the second one. So I'm very intrigued, especially because right. I like the idea that you know, I mean, it stretches before and after because mm -hmm. that tells me, oh, yes, context. Context. I have not heard of the first, but the second. And I agree. I don't know how you pronounce the name officially. And I, I but it is uh, a work I prefer. It's absolutely. Um, yeah. Uh, the things objective it's been is kind of astonishing in its scope. If it's, Jessica says it's objective, it's objective. <laughs> it's fucking objective. OK, like y'all know. Like and I, I haven't read, read it. I haven't read it for years. You know, I, I read it probably back in like 2017 ish. Um, but the, the one thing I remember about it is that it does a good job of breaking out into its own specific areas. Like when it talks about the greens or the blacks or events happening in specific areas, it doesn't get lost in the wider narrative uh, as much. Oh. Yeah, it doesn't get lost in the wider narrative, and by lost in the wider narrative, and you can stop me if I'm wrong, um, I think a lot of things uh, get, quote-unquote, um, hold on, let me get, I'm sorry guys, I had to plug in after, ah, there we go, I had to plug in after my power loss. Um what I mean by it's it, it doesn't get lost in the common narrative if it, it's not there to just particularly paint a picture in broad terms. It it does get down into the nitty gritty, but it also never loses sight of what the overview is. If you uh, there are a lot of books that get if they get into that kind of 
down and dirty exploration, if you will, they sometimes lose sight of what the overarching narrative is. And then they also either compromise to make the narrative or they compromise to make a fact. And I think this one walks the line very, very well. I think it's a really good way of putting it for sure. Uh, it's a it's a complicated story. Uh, the first one, though, I am definitely putting on my reading list because I have actually never read that. So I think it's worth a read. Um, I think the well, the more you, the more you know about the time period, I think probably the the more thoughts you are going to have on how Feige pre presents things. Um, I, I kind of compare it to um, the, the Guns of August, sort of the seminal work on the, star, kind of the start of the First World history, War, so which yeah, as yeah. an introductory text is great, but uh, the more you know about the subject, if you go back and read that, it's not that it's not a good book. It's not that you don't learn a lot from it, but you you have thoughts. You have a lot more thoughts on it <laughs> if you have but more knowledge coming. for this podcast introductory text is what we're looking for yes. and i it's almost more important than than what you put in the second uh, secondary position and what i would put in third fourth fifth sixth and i think those are going to be some of your same reads uh if you get down into the nitty-gritty of this in fact i know they will i can name off the top of my head but the point is I have never read like a just a comprehensive narrative book because it's something I'm familiar with, which I think would benefit me a great deal just reading that. And I think it's going to benefit everybody out there, no matter what span of history you're at, to just get the basic narrative and go forth from there. So that whether it be that you're teaching it or just talking about it with your friends at a fucking bar, like you have a general narrative that you can present because that's not something we've done on this podcast. It's not something that I've ever developed in a general narrative. And thank God for you, I don't have to because you killed it tonight. <laughs> yeah, and for anyone listening, he has literally six episodes on his first podcast dedicated. Yeah, that are um, very well comprehensive. Done. In my opinion between him and then now Mike Duncan exploring the revolution um, in his latest series, there's nowhere else you need to go for a podcast. I know you have thoughts on Mike Duncan, but for the same reason okay. that the popular history is good, it's a good way to dip someone's toes into their water. Like, because, like I said, leaving Duncan out of it. Well, how, okay, okay. First, fine, West, fine. West uh, all right, well... Correct. Wes is a better fucking historian, sorry. So, um, whatever. We can get into the Duncan <laughs> shit to follow. Uh, I, I God knows I love a journalist. Uh, <laughs> okay, sorry. Add, um, for our listeners, that what I like about his first podcast is he doesn't just cut off at, like, 1918. So, can I ask you, when did you realize you weren't going to just end at... Um, <laughs> Well, the end, you know, the traditional end of the war. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so what happened in my first podcast is I was doing a chronological storytelling of the First World War, starting in 1914 and going to the initial plan was the signing of the Treaty of Versailles, uh, which happens in in early 1919. Uh, 
But what I realized as I was researching about that is that, oh, wait, all these other things happen after the war. It expands. It butterflies out very quickly. You start talking about, oh, well, what ramifications did the Treaty of Versailles have on the Middle East? Okay, well, then you got a whole bunch of other stuff to talk about. You know, what's happening in Why Eastern Europe? Didn't, why didn't Woodrow Wilson include that racial equality clause? And why did Japan come at us for that? Yeah, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, I just want to sing Aladdin's whole new world. When you get to yeah. like the Treaty of Versailles, the way you explain like it opened up. I just wanted to start background singing a whole new world. So I'm sorry. Was it, so to continue what you were saying, you were you were doing like the you thought you were going to do Versailles and that was it. Yeah. At what point would, were you realizing, OK, this is expanding. This is expanding. It's, oh, no, this is not going to be the end of the war. I, I think it was actually the, the Russian Civil War that kind of drove that a little bit. Uh, because what kind of ended up happening is after I was doing the Versailles episodes, got done with the research for that. Um, I was doing some additional reading about sort of the consequences in Eastern Europe. And so that then led me into the Polish-Soviet War, which then made me be like, I have to talk about the Russian Civil War or the Polish-Soviet War is not going to make any sense. And and I have to say that, you know, the events of, let's call it 1918 to 1923-ish in Eastern Europe is are some of the most fascinating things that... I read about during that project. Um, I think it's it's really interesting to see these nations trying to create themselves in a sometimes hostile environment. Um, and then also, you know, the the all the Russian Civil War stuff that we've talked about today. So, it, and it just kind of kept going, right? It kept expanding out further until eventually I kind of ended up stopping when uh, the story... <laughs> Because you're telling a chronological story of the First World War, at some point, the threads of the First World War kind of end. And you end up start talking about the threads for this other war that happens, you know, 20 years later. Um, <laughs> and so that, that's when I decided to end it. You're like, oh, no, yeah, this is going to be more of a... And to, to further your point, like, when did you decide, okay, did you know all along you wanted to do a Second World War podcast, or did that just no. come to you? Um, that <laughs> was like, never the oh. plan, because <laughs> up until probably um, probably 2018, so this would have been when I was talking about the probably the German spring offensives um, of that year, uh, I was frankly scared of trying to do a Second World War podcast. It is, It is hard to quantify how much bigger of a story it is than the first world war um i think you could very easily spend three years four years of episodes just talking about the events in russia from 1941 to 1945 um okay. whereas i spent five years talking about the entire of the first world war um my plan was always to do something else but then near the end of the history of the great war i just kept reading up in history because I was curious about what was happening. And then I just was yeah. like, well, I guess, I guess I got to keep going. I can't just stop. Um, but there were <laughs> other, there were other ideas that I was going to transition to that. Ooh, didn't end up I'm happening. curious. What are you allowed to share what those ideas are? Sure. Like, like, yeah. I'm, I don't know if 
So I was going to do an explore an exploration podcast, a history of exploration, but then somebody started one of those and essentially made exactly the podcast that I was going to make <laughs> down to the, oh some of the topics. Uh, and then uh, I've also, I came very close in 2014 to making a naval history podcast of that would have went from pre-Napoleonic until the end of the Second World War. Oh, that would be very fitting with you know, all the resurgence in Napoleonic history. Yeah, yeah but uh, eventually, you know, those ideas got kind of swept under the rug, and I I have plenty of naval research to do uh, for... You have plenty of naval history now. in front of you. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like there's a lot having to there's do a lot. naval confrontation in World War Two. Wow. But, um, I guess and now that... When did you decide to start where you have with your new podcast? Because that's a natural follow-up, I suppose, to the questions I've already <laughs> shot at you. Yeah, so uh, I uh, I knew coming into the new podcast that I really wanted to do the interwar years justice, right? Um, one of the things I always regretted about the first podcast is, first of all, I was an idiot. I had no idea what I was doing in 2014 when I started, and I made some really poor choices. Um, and one of those poor choices was not spending enough time on the lead up to the conflict because I, you she know, I thought of the head first. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, you, the first note of, Hey, I should make a podcast. How hard can it be? Was in, I think like late May, 2014. And I released the first episode on July 24th or whatever. And so I didn't have a lot of lead time, but this time I was like, I'm going to do the interwar years justice. And I think, um, that has been very rewarding for me. I think there's a lot of really interesting history there that gets glossed over as people just race to what I've been referring to for the last year as the Panzers in Poland moment, uh, which is what a lot of histories get to either start at or get to as fast as possible. Huh. That's really cool. Like, I have such admiration for, like, I guess how much you've taken on like at this point i'm pretty sure you know the enormity of world war ii and everything surrounding it but i just think you do it in such good bite-sized chunks because the other thing i want to point out like length time so if you look at the first podcast the first show he did um for the episodes pertaining to like the russian civil war what we've been talking about each episode is roughly 25 to 30 minutes so it's it's very digestible very easy to listen to and fit in in a setting that's what that's what's so great about your podcasts actually so um one of the things i've really tried to do and one of my big philosophies around not just the podcast but also trying to impart history knowledge on people is that the worst thing you can do and this actually ties back to something jessica said earlier is you're always at danger of because i make a, a military history podcast i say you're always at danger of platoon chasing and rivet counting so you have to be careful to not you know spend uh, a crazy amount of time talking about the troop movements in a specific battle to specific places at specific times or the specific caliber of guns and shell velocities and things like that um because you lose people right and and when you're trying to talk about history when people when you want people to learn about history that isn't necessarily the important information that you want them to get, right? You want them to get um, 
why things are happening and what were the consequences of those things, not this specific unit moved to this tree line at 6.45 a.m. <laughs> on July 7th, 1864. Um, yeah, I'm not going to be red badge of courage kind of thing yeah, when you yeah. say that. As your um, average average history Joe, uh, that is not something I'm going to remember at all. But at the so. same time, like you, you also have to calibrate the detail correctly, or you end up, you know, giving you end up giving information upon which bad assumptions are made or bad Jessica conclusions is are drawn. Amen, right now, like I can <laughs> see the amen in her eyes. Yeah. That's so well articulated. I don't think even Jessica could have said that better than you, at least certainly not as succinctly. Um, how long have you been interested in history? Like, has this been a lifelong passion? Has this yeah. been... I, uh, I was born in 1988, just to properly date myself. <laughs> and so I grew up at a time when the History Channel had history. Um, <laughs> and and, and my, my father was super into it, and... So that's man, I've been preaching that for years. I also was born in 88 and uh, I don't know what the fuck happened with ice road truckers, aliens and the Hitler channel. But that's where we live these days. Yeah. And I think like so I grew up with that. And so it's, it's always been kind of an interest for me. Uh, it kind of ebbed and flowed throughout my life. And um, until I started the podcast or until I decided I wanted to start the podcast after listening to other history podcasts. Um but uh, I do think that, like, we are in something of a renaissance of easily accessible history of mostly okay quality um, with with podcasts and, and YouTube and and things like that. I think hopefully that is really uh, encouraging that interest that I felt, you know, as a kid, you know, watching the History Channel or playing video games, which is where I got a lot of my bad history from as a kid. And then hopefully, hopefully that's a positive. That's true. I think you're right in accessibility to an extent because, I mean, think about like the kind, like Jessica, you're writing the Kremlin for sources. That would not have been possible. You know what I mean? Like 20 years ago or Frank, you know, certainly 30 or 40. Um, (laughs) Well, I I think you would have been on a watch list then, but. I I (laughs) think like as a person, so, uh, I have no academic affiliation or anything like that for my podcast. So I am heavily dependent on sources that are available. And even from that perspective, like not necessarily like the YouTube or or podcasts or whatever, listening to them or watching them perspective from like a doing research perspective, we're also at a very good time in history. You know, I can, I request books from my local library from universities all over the United States on an almost weekly basis. I can jump online and find a hundred years worth of journal articles from uh, people who have written them. So there are you do the you, research. Yeah. If if you if you really want to dive deep, you can dive deep. Uh, yesterday uh, or yesterday? No, wait. Would have been three days ago. I was reading a book about public libraries in Vienna during the Anschluss, a whole article about it that I, that I had available to me free online. Like that's the kind of detail you can find. And it's fantastic. I know we're not not close, but this would be the moment in time where I would literally say, (laughs) no. Yeah. 
Yeah. It was a great article, by the way. It was, it was actually good. Uh, but no, that, that's, that's a good testament. And, you know, I want to say that I think without you having that academic bias, so to speak, I mean, with the, you are in a unique position where you are doing the research that author, like beyond even what I've seen some authors do, like, which I commend you for, and you're doing it in an accessible way. Like, Jessica, I know you were just like, you were listening to him talk about journal articles, and I could see, I could imagine how happy you were in that moment. Like, and it, it shows to me the testament of how important it is to not just have the same kind of people on shows and the same kind of people talking. If, does that make sense? Like, yeah, definitely. Um, I do, wise. I do want to throw out there that I think, um, there is is a difference between what I do and what I am going to use the term real historian. Uh, <laughs> you can take from that phrase whatever you want, because uh, some people get very concerned about how you use that phrase. But the difference between me and somebody who is sort of a, a historian in ac academic sense. I would is say that, capital historian, right? Like sure. Capital yeah. H historian. I I have learned I've learned a lot of things. One of the things I've learned over the years is to not call myself a historian. It makes people angry, and and, and it's because and I think I can see where they're coming from, and I in some way agree with it. In that I am not doing original research, right? I am not diving into primary sources as much as I would like to sometimes because they're not available to me, and so there the research that I can do does have limits. And both in the what I have access to, but also in the the time I have to dedicate to things. Um, this is still a side thing for me. I have a real job <laughs> that I do most days. So I feel that so hard. I really do. <laughs> I work at call center. Can I make the argument that uh, I don't think it makes a damn bit of difference? because uh, I will tell you, if you don't think historians use secondary and tertiary sources almost as much as they use primary sources, let me tell you, half of those, most of them are not able to translate and have to use generally a literary historian or a literary PhD. I know I've been there. Um, <laughs> honest to God, uh, it, it's not... It's not vastly different. What I think, and this is my opinion, separates a true historian from from a non-historian. And I'll say this at the armchair level, uh, armchair level, and everything else. Again, it's objectivity. Uh, I'm sorry, but I think you get to call yourself an ex an historian as long as you are objective about what it is that you're covering and about, about what it is that you're looking up. I'm sorry. I don't think, um, somebody having paid a lot of money to be semi-objective and understand methodology, it's something that's inherent to you. So I don't think that, that we get to objectify or we get to put a label on anything. I think it's quite frankly ridiculous because, I'm sorry, a historian in name or in name only has very little effect on the world, whereas you have a massive effect on the world. So I think it's one of those things that's changing as we get into 
a more publicized sphere. And as we get into this new media age, what you get to call yourself and what you've quote unquote earned, which is the most boring thing in the world. Like if you've earned it, great. But if you suck, fine. Like if you're not an objective fucker, you bore me. You bore me to my very core and you bore your fucking 30%. Yes. They should hear it. Um, and, and you I bore a lot of people. Personally. <laughs> uh, but, I yeah. actually, I would like to say something around that guard. I realize we're a little off topic here, but it to, to the people listening, if you like history, if, if you enjoy learning about history, I highly encourage everybody to, you know, pick something that you're passionate about and learn it at a deeper level, right? Um, I, I think... Uh, people, and you shouldn't uh, feel like a dick because somebody shouldn't. tries to fucking up you on Twitter. Fuck that person. They are not the authority. I will tell you, they are not the goddamn authority. You're exactly right. Go out. Learn something. Be like, don't let academia put you at a disadvantage. They can fuck right off. Nobody cares about them. They're irrelevant outside of their university spheres. And um, quite frankly, I might add add some of them, the ones that seek out to actually talk to normal humanoids. Okay. So the me's and the Wes's of the world, I have tremendous respect. So um, Warren, if you are listening, you are considered one of those that have the credentials that do the research, but are also doing what all historians, capital or lowercase letter are supposed to do he knows what, what i'm saying. saying um uh Find a passion and any go any it. academic that has that same fervor for public education knows exactly what i'm saying and they're not offended and if you are offended you know exactly who i'm fucking talking to <laughs> and i mean it the best but no one gives a shit because here's the thing people like Wes are bringing incredibly objective history that I am very much behind. Like his podcasts are amazing that I think do more for a public sector than some ass old class you had a thousand years ago that you don't remember. Uh, <laughs> quite frankly, I, I think that objectivity is what separates Wes from a lot of people. And I think it's absolutely great. Yeah, in in, in uh, thank you, thank you for not saying those angry words at me. Um, and <laughs> never, she and, would never. <laughs> and so, and so, I just like to to finish off that previous thought, which saying, you know, if you're out there, if you love history, find something you're passionate about, dig into it at a deeper level. You know, get out there, do more reading, and I would also encourage those people to to try and like craft your own thoughts about it and and put them down in some way you don't have to make a podcast you don't have to publish it you don't have to make 400 tweets about it but just try and sort of formulate your own thoughts about it i think it's it's very enlightening when you there's there's a very different level of of learning and thinking about history when you're reading a page or listening or watching and when you actually have to describe something Uh, it really puts you in a very different mindset That, that is my TED does. Talk. Thank you for... No, I agree. I, yeah. I love your that TED Talk, bro. Awesome TED Talk. Um, <laughs> you yeah, didn't even have the hand motions, and I still bought 
your TED talk there. That was very good. Now, what other no lasers? What podcasts do you like that are out there? Because I have to admit, because I enjoy yours so much, I feel like I yeah. would like almost any other one you like by assumption. So, yeah. Um, I don't listen to as many as I used to. Um, I think a lot of the ones that um, I listen to now are a lot of the same ones I listened to a long time ago, uh, sort of back when I started listening to podcasts and are continuing. So uh, I some of my inspirations for History of the Great War were uh, History of the Crusades by Sharon Eastbaugh. Uh, she's continued now in the Reconquista podcasts. Um, uh, Mike Duncan was an influence on me, as he was many podcasters that I've talked to, uh, at least from the independent circuit. Um, it's true, Jessica. You can't. Un- <laughs> it's it, any chronological podcast now will cite Mike Duncan. Yeah. But the Crusades, and, uh, I think the Crusades is great. But go, I on, also, go on. I also really like um, history of philosophy without any gaps. Is something I've. Oh, I've to me quite a bit. too. So it's, good. Really? Yeah. Yeah, it's, I haven't listened to it yeah. yet, actually. There's a lot there. <laughs> I'll, I'll talk to you in five oh, years. So, when <laughs> it's so fucking... Yeah, exactly. Catch up in five years when you catch up on it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. No, it's it's really, really good. It's one of those I've listened from the first two, man. That's a great one. And so some newer ones are... Uh, I'm just going to throw the names of Pax Britannica, um, yep. History of the United States, and... Um, the Explorers podcast, which stole my idea, but the the guys do love them anyway. Good work, yeah. I so. was hoping you'd like them because now I was like, did I ever retweet them this week? Because <laughs> I'd, <laughs> I'd be like thinking, oh no, was it a plagiarized idea? But no, I I agree with all of those, like, with the aside from the one I haven't listened to, which I now have a podcast to binge watch or binge listen to for eternity. Oh, it's, um, it's super good, Kara. You're going to enjoy that. That's one of those that I've been listening to. Like one of the ones I do listen to forever, you know, like I have a set amount of specific podcasts I've been listening to from the beginning. And that is definitely one actually. One, I think you might like Wes, if, and you might be connected with them. I'm not sure, but age of Victoria is really good. Um, yeah, Chris from Age of Victoria. The way he does it is good because he has it's a very complicated era, but I think he does a good job of conceptualizing themes and actually in quite an objective way, which is what I think you would appreciate. Um, trying to think of other ones that I listen to because I feel like I list my mind is blank. I asked you the question, and now I'm like, yeah, if I was asked it, I'm not sure what I would say anymore. I think for me, uh, I actually had to cut down a lot over the last few years. Um, there for a while, when I had more free time before I had a child, um, I would listen to a lot of <laughs> them at, at, in the evenings while playing video games. But since I don't really get to do that anymore, I had to really, really cut the old catalog of, of podcasts. But I would say Twitter is a good way for discovering podcasts mm-hmm. oh, yeah. for anyone out there that's listening. So. But yeah, thank you so much um, for coming on tonight. I know we had kind of, he said what he liked. Um, Please go ahead and share where we can find you on social media, Patreon, everything else. So the the main website now for the new show is just historyofthesecondworldwar.com, which somehow wasn't taken 
not sure. Um, wow. So historyofthesecondworldwar.com is where you can find all the links to everything. Uh, the problem is with my lengthy podcast titles, I don't have great Twitter handles <laughs> for things. So I think it's World War II Pod is the Twitter handle. So it's usually a lot easier to just go to the website and click the link. Um, I'm also over, yeah, I'm over at Patreon at patreon.com slash history of the great war, um, which is still going for the new podcast. It's, it's bad that it's named that, but I didn't think about that five years ago when I started that page. So do you make it backslash? Could you like say history you cannot, of the great war and so I could, but I can't, um, but I can't go back and edit all the audio, the 200 audio files where I say, go to patreon.com slash history of the great war. So in the new episodes, you'll notice I only say history of the yep. second world war.com slash members, which just has a link. Um, that's, that's sneaky. Yeah, that's true. That, but yeah. that makes more sense when you say it. Cause you can't re-edit 200 episodes. Yeah. That'd be crazy. Insane. But no, um, it was an absolute pleasure. I appreciate you scheduling um, to talk to us. Um, I know you were the first one that reached out to us with interest. So I greatly, I know, I think I can speak for all of us when I say very truly are flattered that you would reach out to us because you're just obviously a wealth of knowledge. Um, and I think you do the work. Um, anyone that can put out an entire chronological podcast of the first world war, my God, like that's ambition. And then to do it a second time. I have two things to say. First of all, okay. if you're going back to listen to History of the Great War, skip the 1914 episodes. I think they're garbage. <laughs> um, as the person who made them, I can say that. Um, uh, second, thank you for inviting me. Um, doing the solo podcast thing means I am alone with history quite often. I don't get a lot of time to discuss it. So thank you for making this opportunity available to me. Absolutely. Oh, you're always and welcome. Um, if you ever need to... Um, if you're like particularly in deep in research, I'm pretty sure Jessica would be like, we volunteer our door open uh, for further for further discussions. I can see it in her in the whites of her eyes, I think. Does she have whites in her eyes? I'm not sure. <laughs> but uh, I think you impressed Jessica, which I'm going to add is a rare thing. Um, Jessica. Oh, no, we lost her. I'm going to top it. It's a nearly impossible thing to do. I am yeah. not easy to impress, sir. <laughs> very, very hard to do. There's been occasions where I've actually impressed her on my own research for, for certain topics. But um, for <laughs> you to come on and touch base on obviously something that she clearly knows very well. Uh, and still impress yeah. her? That's like, and, still and still impress, impress me. here. Yeah, it is God tier, actually, because it's uh, something I know very well. And let me put it this way. Uh, I had nothing to add. It would have been the same way I presented it. And you absolutely fucking killed it, which um, is a rare thing that I say these days. Normally, I am a condescending bitch and a half. But uh, damn, it's good. This is why I listen to the podcast. It's damn good. I suggest... Everybody go listen to not just the current, but go back and listen. I'm sorry, even the 1914 episodes, if you're not like <laughs> proud of them, if you're not proud of them, I thought they were still great as somebody that um, used to work uh, this, this podcast. Yes, it started as a conversation with me and Bethany, but even before that, 
it was a bid by the aviation museum I was working for to start a podcast. Um, and I couldn't find where to start off and where I actually found to start off with the original producer they'd hired was, um, just essentially Pearl Arbor. So it was really, really interesting that once you got the Treaty of Versailles, you jumped off because I knew instantly I was going to have to tell them, go fuck yourselves, because the first thing I started doing was talking about Bethany, talking about um, equality clauses and the Treaty of Versailles and 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 how I wanted to... Yeah, and contextualizing and how I wanted to pontificate uh, basically on the fact that the, neither the United States nor uh, you, the United Kingdom has ever been or will ever be the contextually always good guy. Um, and so it kind of jump-started this podcast as well, but it's absolutely fantastic, and I suggest everybody go listen to them. I'm a big fan of them, and I say that with all sincerity at this point because there are some things I listen to that I'm like, oh, I like it. I'm a fan of it, but this I'm a big fan of because you just covered the entire revolution the way I would cover it and then some so congratulations to you sir like fucking phenomenal Uh, I can't say enough good things very much I'm I'm fucking pumped about it so if we but really quickly I wanted to add is there anywhere that anybody can follow you personally that you want to add Wes um, yeah, so you can follow me on, on Twitter at Wesley Livesey. Um, that's W-A-S-L-E-Y-L-I-V-E-S-A-Y. If you can find the one for the podcast, look at the description. I'm pretty sure my name is in there. I kind of tried to link all those together recently. But, uh, yeah, that's uh, pretty much the only place I am online. Um, I realize I'm I'm old now. I'm an old because I don't have a TikTok is it TikTok these days? I don't know. I'm too old to know. Um, it's but... all right, man. I'm too old to know too. And Twitter <laughs> is my <laughs> primary outlet. Personal one. I think I like legit only just followed your. I've always followed your um, other handle, but I'm shocked. Pretty sure it's in his bio there. If it I'm is, correct, it is. And then okay, yeah, if you find him on Twitter easily, you can. It'll link to History Great War and World War II Pod. So. Awesome. So, Kara, where do people find you? And go ahead and plug your uh, additional oh. stuff as well. Me? Okay. Um, <laughs> you can find me on Twitter. Um, it's at Kara Um Just my first name and last name. You can also... I have Instagram, but I'm not even going to emphasize it because I don't really use it anymore. Um, so, I'm going to go ahead and plug Time Travel Talks anyway. Um, on Twitter and Instagram for that, because it's basically a community I started um, for the hope of engaging both armchair historians and people passionate about history with with academics and people that might be the capital H for historian, because I don't know about you, but I, I actually founded this in 2019. And it really complemented 2020 well, because it was like, oh, we can have discussion questions. We can actually link to so many more archives that were not available and i run a discord server with it and wes i can i can link you to it because i know you have discord for your patreon but it's a community of podcasters authors 
again, your amateur historians or armchair historians, because I don't like the word amateur in any case, um, to kind of talk, to be able to both chit chat, but as well as share resources, um, promote content, um, generate discussion. We plan to launch with formal discussions again soon. Um, Leah and I for that have some big plans underway, probably starting in like late February, early March would be my guess from what the latest discussion was. But seriously, if anyone's interested in time travel talks, there's the hashtag and then there's just the Twitter handle. And then you can also DM if interested in a Discord link. Um, it's just a great way of meeting fellow history fans. So there's that. And then Bethany, Jessica, where can we find you ladies? Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Bethany Skelton 5. And then you can find me at the same handle on Twitter, but be sure to capitalize on my BS initials. Always capitalize on the BS, everyone, okay? So that's where you can find me. Jessica. You can find the show at bodycounthistorypod.com. Again, you guys know I'm working on that website currently, and it was a more fierce undertaking than I initially thought because I'm a perfectionist, and so I spend hours a day on what the landing page may look like. So it's been a, uh, a lot of fun for me, but also you can follow the podcast at Body Count Pod on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We are constantly posting for all of that shit. Bethany is like our marketing fucking mogul. She does an amazing job, and I have to give you huge fucking props. And thanks, Bethany, because Jesus sometimes Christ I knows. I sneak on it now, honestly. <laughs> I sneak on, so sometimes Bethany doesn't know if she's doing it or I'm doing it, so... I don't know. I'm a Luddite, and I don't quite frankly yeah. care. Um, <laughs> you can follow me at Jessica B, as in Bravo Manor, spelled like the house, not the behavior. Jessica B Manor on Twitter and Instagram. I'm not generally on Instagram. It's not my favorite fucking platform. I don't do yoga in my front yard. Uh, set against the sunset I record podcasts and I'm guests on podcasts and that's what I do so they're always here in my podcast hut looking like I look right now uh, no you guys can't see it but uh, you can see it when I'm occasionally on fucking Instagram which I think may be the bane of entire generations but who am I to say that being said, I am on Twitter a lot. So, guys, that's going to do it for us this episode. Wes, I don't say this in earnest to many a podcast guest, but you were truly a fucking delight, sir. Thank like, you, sir. really and Excellent. truly. Thank you so much. Like, it was, it was great stuff. No, seriously, thank you very much. Um, I appreciate you answering all of Bethany and these questions because I know I asked an obscene amount of questions so i do apologize um and i'm proud of myself that i didn't have that many i actually understood quite a lot of shit so thank you Wes. and i never had to interject to clarify a point so goddamn like we hit that's it across all record. fucking three said that's a world record sir we hit it across all three sectors uh that being said we are going to get at you guys later in the week or next week. We hope you have 
a happy, peaceful, hopefully not too pandemic y time. So we'll be back at you later. Bye. Bye. Bye.